Can you believe that we're finally ending up Tuesday of the Passion Week? Actually, Tuesday began when they were walking from Bethany. Remember, Monday morning he had cursed the fig tree, and Tuesday morning, as the Lord and his men left Bethany and they were on their way to Jerusalem, they passed that fig tree he had cursed the day before, and his disciples were so amazed because it had already withered at the roots and was dead. And then they went on and they proceeded to go into Jerusalem, and immediately the Lord was confronted by the religious rulers. It was a day of great confrontation. They asked him originally where he got the authority to do what he had just done the day before, which was cleanse the temple. And he said, well, if you'll tell me where John the Baptist got his authority, I'll tell you where I get mine. That shut them up. And then they, remember, proceeded to, uh, well, he proceeded to expose their hypocrisy and their wickedness and their self-righteousness by presenting to them three parables. The parable of the two sons. Remember the one son said to his dad, yeah, I'll go work in your field, but he never went. The other son said, I won't work in your field, but he did go. And he was telling them basically they didn't get it, but uh, that they, the rulers of Israel, represented the son who said, yeah, I'll go work in your field, but they didn't go. Then he had presented them with the parable of the uh, wicked vine dressers. And those wicked vine dressers represented, again, the religious rulers. They were beginning to get it by then. And then he presented them with that third uh, parable in the trilogy, which was the parable of the wedding banquet for the king's son. I got to thinking about it. There was so much time between the parable of the, of the wedding banquet for the king's son and the parable of the ten virgins that I forgot they were presented on the very same day. And they both had to do with the wedding banquet, didn't they? Well, after those three parables, we were told that the religious rulers were so mad at him because they finally got it that they were always the bad guys in the parables, that they wanted to pick up stones and kill him. But, of course, they couldn't. And then he, he went into his um, uh, denunciation discourse, which was where your book six began, was on the denunciation discourse where... Uh, no, I'm sorry, that didn't come yet. The next thing that came was three confrontations in a row from the religious rulers. They presented him with a politically loaded question having to do with paying their taxes. And remember how he silenced them by saying, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. Then they presented him with a doctrinally loaded question that was given to him by the Sadducees, and it had to do with the resurrection. This is Tuesday. No, this is all Tuesday. So think about these things because these are what you learned this week and that's what I want you to share about maybe next week, how any of these lessons might have affected you in particular or whatever. But uh, then he was, he was given that doctrinally loaded question where the Sadducees said, what about a woman who had seven husbands? Whose wife would she be in the resurrection? And then he gave them a very scripturally irrefutable answer to that question straight from Moses. And remember, the Sadducees only believed that Moses was divinely inspired, not the rest of the, they didn't trust the rest of the Old Testament. So he had a politically loaded question shot at him, a doctrinally loaded question, and then a, a theologically loaded question, which had to do, and they sent their smartest lawyer to him to ask about what is the great commandment. And in asking that question, they were hoping that he would con say something that would contradict Moses. But again, he utterly silenced them by um, giving an answer straight from Moses. And so, it says after those three... Oh, and then he had a question of his own. 
Remember? Then he shot back at them a question of his own, which he himself answered, and it had to do with his deity. And his answer to his own question was so amazing, came straight from the uh, Old Testament, that we were told in Matthew twenty-two forty-six. after that it said, No man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth, what? Ask him any more questions. <laughs> that was the end of the question sessions, sessions for the uh, religious rulers. Then it was after that. I'm sorry, I'd gotten it wrong before. But after those confrontations, that's when he launched into giving his denunciation discourse, which we spent two lessons on in Matthew 23. Remember when he said, Whoa, unto you, scribes and Pharisees, how many times? Seven, seven times. He denounced them for being such hypocrites, such wicked, hypocritical leaders of the people. And at the end of that discourse, that is when he predicted the desolation, the utter desolation of the magnificent temple there in, in Jerusalem. Well, after all of that, and it's already been a long Tuesday, he departed from the court of the Gentiles where he had been, and he went into the court of the women, and there his father presented him with a precious gift. Who remembers what that precious gift was? Yes, the widow woman, the poor widow woman who put into the alms chest all that she had, which consisted of two mites, which together equaled about one-eighth of a cent. And I think, you know, she was like a beautiful rose in the midst of a field of weeds and probably refreshed the Lord's heart enough that he could then get up and proceed on with all the activities that yet faced him on that very busy Tuesday. So rising from his place of temporary rest there in the, the court of the women, which also served as the temple treasury, he departed for the very last time from the temple. And as he walked, that's when he told his disciples about the coming total destruction of that magnificent temple, which had taken years and years. It wasn't even complete. It wouldn't be complete until six years before it was then destroyed in 70 A.D. And when he told them that, they were just amazed because that was the pride and joy of the Jewish people. And it was then in response to another, that, not only that, prediction that the temple would be destroyed but on Palm Sunday he had also told them that Jerusalem would be destroyed and so it was in response to two questions that four of the disciples posed to him when they got to the crest of the Mount of Olives you know he left the temple he left the city of Jerusalem went out the eastern gate down the Kidron Valley and when he got to the top of the Mount of Olives he sat down to rest and Peter Andrew James and John came to him and they asked him these two questions when, when, tell us, when shall these things be, the destruction of the temple and, and Jerusalem? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And from that, those questions, he then proceeded to give them what? Thank you. If you didn't know that, I would shoot you all. <laughs> because we have been, for ten weeks, we have been on the Olivet Discourse. And I certainly don't have time to uh, review all of that for you, but you can look through your books and review it in your mind. But I also got to thinking this week as I was reviewing all these things on Tuesday, this makes sense. Do you know how many parables he spoke on Tuesday? How many would you think? You got it right. I got to thinking. The parable of the two sons, parable of the wicked vine dressers, parable of the wedding banquet for the king's son, 
parable of the budding fig tree. Then he gave the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents, and the parable of the sheep and goats. Whoops, I didn't count right, but that's seven. <laughs> what was I doing with my fingers? <laughs> it was a total of seven. Seven parables on Tuesday. That's a lot of parables. But now he's finished. Remember I told you the parable of the sheep and goats is the last parable he ever speaks. No more parables. Well, it is still Tuesday. He just finished up the Olivet Discourse. It's still Tuesday. And uh, we are going to now go into the next events that we find on this day. And they all have to do with the Lord's very quickly approaching death. We're going to look at three distinct incidents that happened on the rest of this day as we get, you know, into the evening hours. And what they are is we're first of all going to look at his own prediction of his upcoming death, the ruler's plan for his upcoming death, and then Mary's preparation for his death. In today's lesson, we're going to see human nature at its very best and at its very worst. We're going to see it at its very best presented by Mary of Bethany, who anoints the Lord's feet with her expensive spikenard perfume. And that's why this lesson is entitled Broken and Spilled Out. Then we're going to see human nature at its very worst, not only as we look at Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel at that time, but also Judas Iscariot. So let's begin by looking at the Lord's own prediction of his death. And for this, I'm going to just read verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 26. It says, And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings. What sayings? Everything he had said Tuesday, but primarily here, the Olivet Discourse. When he finished all these sayings, the Olivet Discourse, he said unto his disciples, Ye know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is betrayed to be crucified. All right, here we are told that after he spoke the Olivet Discourse, he very specifically told his men that after two days at the Feast of what? Feast of Passover. What day of the week is it? Tuesday. In two days, what day would it be? Thursday. I'm going to teach you. You'll see this next year when we get more into it, but I am going to be teaching. Not that it makes a whole lot of difference because great men of God and women of God disagree on it. But I am going to be teaching that I believe the crucifixion occurred on Thursday instead of the traditional Friday. Okay? He says it's Tuesday. He says after two days we know. Well, I won't get into it now. It'll just take me too long to get through the lesson. So you have to come back next year to see why I say. I'll tell you one thing. When he dies on Thursday, he literally, really, you don't have to play games, was in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights. And you don't have to play little games to make him do that. You know, and he predicted that as Jonas was in the belly of the whale for three nights and three days. All right, now, um, <clears throat> so he told them in two days on the feast of the Passover, he would not only be crucified, but what did he say before that? Betrayed. He knew he was going to be betrayed. You know, that which had been planned by the triune Godhead in eternity pa past was about to be fulfilled. It's just around the corner, the apex of God's whole redemptive plan for man and for earth and for the universe was just about to happen. And Jesus knew all about it. You know, he may not have known when they asked him when would be the time of his second coming. He didn't know that then in his humanity. 
but he certainly did know when would be the time of his death and crucifixion and resurrection because hasn't he already predicted that after three days he would rise from the dead. He knew all about that. He uh, was not the sad victim of circumstances, as so many people in the world will try to say about Jesus Christ, just sad victim of circumstances that went beyond his control, or that he was a misled revolutionary who came to an unplanned, tragic end. He was not a deluded madman who got what he deserved for making blasphemous claims about his deity. He is the very son of the living God. He planned his death just as he planned his resurrection. What does it say? What did he say himself in John 10, 18? He said, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. Do you know when he gave up his life? How many people can plan the minute of their death when they'll take their last breath? Well, I guess you could if you committed suicide, but other than that, he gave up his breath at 3 p.m., exactly when they would begin sacrificing the Passover lambs. On the Passover day, that's when he gave up his spirit. He planned his death. He not only planned the place of his death, which would be where? In Jerusalem, but he planned, right outside the city of Jerusalem, but he planned the way of his death. Didn't he say to Nicodemus that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too would the Son of Man be lifted up? He knew that he would hang on an old wooden cross. He knew that, you know, uh, he would die by way of crucifixion. He knew that. He planned the place of his death, the way of his death, and the time of his death, as I just mentioned. And, he did, and what was the time to be? The Passover feast. Why? Because he was going to fulfill all the, the types that the original Passover presented and all those millions of Passover lambs. He was going to die on the Passover because he is the Lamb of God, the Lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. He would be sacrificed on God's appointed day. And he knew that divine schedule. And he now revealed it to his disciples. Now, he has told them before that he would be betrayed he has also told them that he would die at the hands of the religious rulers. And he's also told them he would rise again on the third day, but he had never told them when, had he? Now he tells them it's going to be in two more days. It's going to be on the Passover. Now, you might recall from our long look at his life that there were many times when people tried to kill Jesus, starting when he was just a little boy and Herod the Great wanted to, to kill him, this king of the Jews that the wise men told him about. And then there were his people, his hometown people of Nazareth who wanted to push him off a cliff and do away with him. And many times the religious rulers wanted to kill him. They would actually pick up stones and have the stones in their hands ready to kill him. And somehow he would just, you know, walk right through the midst of them. So they were, many times they wanted to, to kill him, but they were unable to do so. Why is that? Well... It's because his death at any other time than the day of Passover, three and a half years after he began his ministry, would not have fit God's timetable. Had to be on the Passover. It also had to be three and a half years after he started. Because remember how long they were to examine their Passover lamb? They would get it on the fourth of uh, the... Yeah, 10th of Nisan, and then for the next three and a half days, they would examine it, and then they would kill it on the 14th of Nisan. So 
the Passover lamb, you know, John pointed to him, the lamb of God, that began his ministry. And then after three and a half years of examining the lamb, they killed him on the, the 14th. After, th you know, three and a half days, three and a half years. So it had to be exactly when he died. That was God's timetable. All right, let's look now. That's all I'm going to say about his prediction of his own death. Let's look at the plan for death by the rulers. And for this, I'll read verses 3 to 5. It says, Then assembled together the chief priests and the scribes. Now, they represent the religious nobility of the people and the elders of the people who represent just the lay rulers of Israel, the elders. All these, the, the religious rulers and the secular rulers, gathered together where? unto the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety. Hmm. You know what that word reminds me of? Go way, way, way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 1. And the serpent was more subtle than any other creature. Who was behind this little planning session on how they might destroy Jesus? None other than Satan himself, who does things by stealth, cunningly, you know, privately, secretly, deceitfully. It says they consulted that they might take Jesus by subtlety and kill him. But they said, not on the feast day, <laughs> lest there be an uproar among the people. Well... Sometime on Tuesday, sometime after Jesus had pronounced his woe judgments in that denunciation discourse of Matthew chapter 23, and probably while he was even yet sitting on the Mount of Olives presenting the Olivet Discourse to his men, in that time frame, apparently, what happened is the chief priests you know, they hated him. He had just not only cleansed the temple, hurt their pocketbooks, but he had just publicly humiliated them by winning every confrontation and then pointing to them over and over again in his parables about how hypocritical and how self-righteous and wicked they were. So they really hated him. They come together in Caiaphas's house, and they're planning uh, how they might seize Jesus and kill him. Now, the high priest at that time, whose full name was Joseph Caiaphas, was also, by virtue of his office, he was also the president of the Sanhedrin. Um, and he was a co-reigning high priest. There, now, this tells you something about the spiritual state of Israel at that, that time, because there should have only been one high priest in Israel. And he was to have come from the Aaronic priesthood. But at this time, for four years, right at the time when Jesus had his ministry and was crucified, there were two high priests. That's a big no-no, according to God. And they were corrupt, awful men. One was named Annas, and the other was Caiaphas. Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And these two guys ran the nation. Um, kind of like, you know... Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> I just couldn't help that. <laughs> now, to tell you something about the, the corruption of these man, men and the cleverness, I mean, they were shrewd politicians. And, and I can say that because they held the, the, the position for a long time. Caiaphas held the position of high priest for 22 years. And that might not sound too amazing to you, but when he 
vanished from the scene, which was four years after Jesus' death. He went out of office in 37. I don't know if he died. I don't know. But from 37 to 67 A.D., that's 40 years. Do you know how many high priests they had? 28. 28 high priests after Caiaphas and Annas. So for those two men, and especially Caiaphas, to hold their positions tells us a lot of things about them. It tells us they were big compromisers with Rome. You know, in those days, up until uh, 70 A.D., the man who got the position of high priest bought his way. Absolutely. It, w- it went to the highest bidder. They were appointed by Rome. didn't matter to Rome if they were of you know, the line of Aaron. They just gave the job to the highest bidder. So 28 pre- high priests after Jesus. You can see the spiritual decline, right, right after they killed Jesus. But so that tells us that these men um, were, were treacherous, they were deceitful, uh, they were corrupt, they were smooth politicians, though, to keep their positions. They, they did whatever they could to appease Rome and stay in their positions. Now, naturally, uh, Caiaphas did not care too much about Jesus, did he? Because Jesus had just cleansed the temple for the second time in his ministry, he had cleansed it early in his ministry. You can read about it in John chapter 2. And just the day before, on Monday, he had cleansed it for the second time. That was profitable. That we, it was even subtitled Annas' Bazaar. These two Sadducees, they were Sadducees, uh, Annas and Caiaphas, they were making a lot of money on the corruption going on with the money changers and the animal sellers. And so Jesus was, you know, he, they didn't like him because he affected their, their wallets. But more than that, I think that Caiaphas hated Jesus and wanted to kill him because he presented a a real threat, a serious threat to his own position and his own power over the people. Jesus was too popular with the people. You think Caiaphas was very popular? Is Harry Reid very popular? Nancy very popular? I mean, the polls show they're way down there, aren't they? This man... He didn't have any true regard for his people, and the people knew it. He, he was all about himself. He was all about Caiaphas. He even used his religion for his own plans and purposes. If you can call Sadducees a religion, I still have yet to see how it could be called a religion because they didn't believe in anything except money. <laughs> I mean, they didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the eternality of the, of the soul. They didn't believe in supernatural and miraculous. They didn't even believe in anything in the Bible except the books of Moses. So I don't know how you can call him religious, but he used his religion for his own personal gain. Well, when the chief priests and elders met together, they planned to take Jesus by stealth. In other words, subtly, cunningly, privately. They didn't want to stir up the massive crowds gathered together in the city for the Passover celebration because the people were still extremely fond of of the prophet from Galilee. So what they wanted to do was arrest him secretly and then kill him as soon as the Passover crowds dispersed from the city. They'd have to wait until not only the Passover was over, but right after, right on the heel, uh, heels of the Passover was the next feast, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then there, the, the fir- Feast of the First Fruit. So they'd have to wait some days. They'd keep him locked up somewhere and then after all the feast days were over then they would privately just dispense of him they would kill him but what does it say 
Specifically, they would not kill him. This is their plan. They would not kill him on the feast day, lest there be an uproar among the people. From the perspective of the rulers of Israel, the Passover was absolutely the worst time of all for them to kill Jesus because it would indeed cause an uproar and subsequent riot among the people, the crowds of people, and that would get them in serious trouble with Rome, wouldn't it? And they might lose their positions, which they so coveted. Yet, from God's perspective, that's man's perspective, we're going to, you know, kill him on any day but not the Passover but from God's perspective that was precisely the day that he had chosen for uh, those hateful Christ rejectors to crucify his son they therefore regardless of what their plans were they would kill Jesus on the very day that they said they would not kill him does not God have a sense of humor I see this I, I laugh when I read this I, th I know God has a sense of humor because he created us in his own image, didn't he? And do we have sense of, I hope, if you don't have a sense of humor, you better go out and get one pretty fast. <laughs> because to live in this life, you've got to have a sense of humor. <laughs> got to be optimistic and laugh at, learn to laugh at yourself, number one. Please learn to laugh at yourself. People who can't laugh at themselves are just so uptight and not even fun to be around. <laughs> Oh, so why was this? Why would they kill him on the very day that they said they would absolutely, out of 360 days of the year, they had 360. Uh, the one day they wouldn't kill him would be the Passover, and yet that's the very day they killed him. Why was that? Because who's in control? God is in control. Don't forget that. Don't forget, man is not in control. He might think he is, but God is the one orchestrating everything. Absolutely everything. During the numerous times that these rulers did want to kill Jesus, they were unsuccessful. They couldn't. No matter how hard they tried, they just could not kill him. But the one time they actually wanted to postpone putting him to death, they couldn't. And I see that as humorous. So he was not the victim of circumstances. He was the sovereign king. We'll see this as we get in the next two years, you know, closer to his crucifixion, when we see him uh, in all those trials, those mock trials, and, and even when they nail him to the cross, and while he's up on the cross, he is in complete control. If you ever saw anyone cool, calm, and collected in terrible circumstances, it was Jesus. He's in perfect control, orchestrating every word he says and everything he does. It's everybody else around him who's falling to pieces, but not him. He was sovereign king. He is sovereign king. He, he set the time, the place, and the manner of his own death. And he made sure that his disciples knew this ahead of time. He's telling them ahead of time so that from hindsight, when they look back on it, they would remember and they would, it would be one more proof that he was indeed who he said he was the very Son of God, the Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. So he told them that it would be two more days, he would be betrayed, and he would be crucified, and it would be the Passover. Well, Jesus and his band of weary men departed from the Mount of Olives, and they walked short, the short distance, be about a mile and a half from the Mount of Olives, over to Bethany, where they spent every night of the Passion Week. They got to Bethany. I suppose they freshened up a little bit at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And then they had a dinner at a man named Simon's house, Simon the leper. But you can guess that he was no longer a leper 
or he wouldn't be inviting people to his house for dinner. He could invite them, but I doubt they would come. So what do you think must have happened to Simon, the former leper? Obviously, Jesus had cleansed him somewhere. We don't know when he cleansed him, but somewhere along the line, he had been cleansed. He had been healed by Jesus. So that evening, Tuesday evening, they were all invited over to Simon's house for a feast. And so as we look now at the next recorded event in the Lord's life, we're going to look at a third aspect of his soon coming death, which was his preparation for his death by Mary. And as we look at what Mary did for the Lord, we will talk first of all about her worship expressed and then her worship examined. It's going to be examined first of all by Judas and then by Jesus. So let's begin by looking at Mary's worship expressed. And for this, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 in Matthew 26, and then we're going to move over to John 12, okay? But let's look first of all, since you're in Matthew 26, at verses 6 and 7. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, there came unto him a woman having an alabaster box of very precious ointment and poured it on his head as he sat at meat. Now, if you will quickly move over to John chapter 12. We haven't been in John in forever, a long, long time. Let's look at John 12, verses 2 and 3. There, it was in Bethany, they made him a supper. John 12, 2. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him, with Jesus. Then took Mary, ah, Matthew just told us a woman. Now we find out, find out who the woman was. Who was it? Mary, Martha's sister, Mary of Bethany. Then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet, feet. The other passage told us she poured it out on his head, but what do you think happened? It spilled all the way down to his feet. When it was on his feet, the expensive uh, oil, Perfume. She let down her hair and wiped it with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment, which was a pleasant, wonderful, beautiful odor. Okay, after a very, very busy Tuesday, Jesus went to a supper held in the home of this man named Simon, who obviously had been cleansed of leprosy sometime earlier. Here he was surrounded finally. It had been a, a day of being surrounded by his enemies. Here, finally, he is surrounded by his most intimate friends. We know that there were at least 17 people there at this feast held in the honor for the honor of Jesus at Simon's house because you'd figure the Lord's there and his 12 disciples, that makes 13, and then you have to have Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were all there, we're told, so that's 16, and then who else do we know was there? Simon, the former leper. So we know at least 17 people. Very likely there were even some more there at this feast. Now, it's quite likely that Simon was either a relative or a very intimate friend of Martha and Mary because who is serving as the hostess at this feast? Martha is serving. Although we find out in one of the passages, I don't know where it was, that the plural pronoun is used where it says they made him a supper, which implies that although Martha did the serving, she had some help. So I would like to say that probably Mary was helping. Mary helped her 
in the preparation of the meal because it says they made him a supper. I think that we can intelligently guess that this feast was held in the honor of the Lord Jesus as an expression of deep gratitude to, to him that all the hosts and all the people there had for what he had done for them. Think of Simon. Why would he want to have a feast to honor Jesus? Because can you imagine You'd have, you, you were a leper and someone comes along and cleanses you totally and you can, you can mingle with people again and have people over to your home and go to the synagogue. He is very excited about his new life in Christ, so he wants to honor Jesus. He, he has a new transformed life. Then you think about Lazarus. Okay, why would he want to celebrate? <laughs> he had been a dead man. and He was a dead man raised to newness of life in Christ. And then you had Martha and Mary. They had been mourning sisters who were now rejoicing sisters, weeping sisters who were now very, very happy that their brother was alive again. And then think of some of the apostles. We had Levi, who had been a publican, ostracized by his own people for being a tax collector. He became who? Matthew you know, one of the ones we're reading from his account. And then you had uh, men such as uh, Simon the Zealot, a guy who would go around slitting the throats of Romans. He was a new man in Christ. I can assure you he wasn't doing that anymore. So all, everyone there except for one, Judas Iscariot, every one of them um, are evidence of new life in Christ and how he can, how he can transform a person. And so they're showing, they're showing their love and appreciation by having this feast for him. Now, uh, we remember the last time we saw Martha. Martha. Martha here again, it's very, she is, uh, this is her characteristic method of showing her love and appreciation. And how does she do that? She obviously had the gift of hospitality. She was one of those women like so many of you, you know, she just loved serving, making food and serving it to people and having them over and just being the hostess. But the last time we saw her doing all of that, she uh, had to be gently reproved by the Lord, didn't she? Because she was cumbered. Again, like many of us, we might have the gift, but sometimes it just gets us all uptight, doesn't it? We get anxious about many things. And she was cumbered about with her much serving, which caused her to complain about receiving no help from her sister Mary. So I'm glad that they together served here. I think they both learned a lesson. Mary again is seen where? At the feet of Jesus, right? But apparently, first of all, she had helped her sister out in the kitchen. And Martha is still using her gift of hospitality. She's still doing her thing and serving the Lord, but this time she's doing it much more wisely. She's not all concerned about having everything perfect and getting all the glory for herself and having everybody say how wonderful the meal was. This time she's just serving from a heart of love and devotion for the Lord. And, she, and we know that because she doesn't say a word of complaint, even though her sister again there is sitting at the feet of Jesus. So they've both learned their lessons. N next we're told that Lazarus is also there. Now, do you know this is the first time we've seen Lazarus since he came out of the tomb? And it's so interesting because where is he? He's seated at a table with Jesus. Do you know that's, that's, that's such a beautiful picture of a believer's position in Christ. Once we're raised in newness of life, once we've been born again, you know, grave clothes have been removed and, and we have new life in Christ, where are we then? We're supping with Jesus. We're having fellowship with him. And so this is so neat because this is the next time we see him. The last time we saw him, he was coming out of his grave clothes. <laughs> And now here he is, seated together 
with Jesus Christ at the table. So we are shown a picture of Martha, the worker, Lazarus, the wonder, right? I mean, people were coming from all over to see him. He was a wonder. And we're supposed to be a wonder when we're a new man, a new woman in Christ. People are to look at us and wonder, wow, she's really different. And wonder about us. And he was also a witness. We don't ever know what he said. He didn't, he didn't seem to be a man of many words. But I, I can imagine if he said anything to the people who came to see him, that he, was, that he would say this. This one thing I know, I was dead. And now I'm alive. <laughs> like that man born blind. The one thing I know, I, I was blind and now I see. I was dead and now I'm alive. And, that, and so he was a wonder and a witness. And Mary, well, Mary was the worshiper. Isn't that beautiful? Three, this, the three people in this family represent what all of us should be. Should we not all be workers like Martha, working for the Lord? Shouldn't we all be wonders to those who look at us in our new life in Christ? Shouldn't we all be witnesses? This one thing I know, I was lost and now I'm found. And should not we all be worshipers like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus? What a great picture this is. You know, I know you all know this because you've heard it many times, but there's only three times that we read of Mary of Bethany in the scriptures, in the gospels, and all three times, where is she? She's at best place to be. She's at the feet of Jesus. The first time we saw her was back in Luke 10. She sat at his feet to listen to his words. She listened to him teach, which was very important. That's what we're doing today. We're sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words and listening to his works, aren't we? That's where you get your greatest blessing. That's where she got her greatest blessing. Second time we saw her was in John chapter 11. She came to the Lord's feet after the death of her brother, Lazarus, because it was at the feet of Jesus that she knew she could bring her burdens. Why did she know she could bring her burdens to the feet of Jesus? It's because she had been sitting at the feet of Jesus, learning from him, learning about him. She realized who he was by listening to him, so she knew she could bring her burdens to him. She got her blessings from him and took her burdens to him. Now, the third time we see here is right here in our text. And again, we find her at the Savior's feet. And this time, she is there in worship to give him her best. He had given her her his blessings she could take to him her burdens so she was broken and spilled out and all she wanted to do was give him her very best her expensive spikenard perfume which really represents herself her whole self to be poured out on him well i didn't read mark but over in mark 14:3 it tells us that mary had an alabaster box i know we've already read that she had the alabaster box but mark tells us that it was um of spikenard perfume ointment oil which sold for more than 300 denaria or 300 pence which is the equivalent of an entire year's wage for a common laborer or a roman soldier can you imagine working a whole year you know 40 hours a week for a whole year just so you can go out and buy yourself a bottle of beautiful perfume that's my favorite beautiful that's the name of it beautiful <laughs> can you imagine that 
That's, that's the equivalent of that, a whole year's wages for this. Now, pure spikenard, and I looked this up, spikenard was a, from a plant that came from India. So part of the expense, it was very costly, part of the expense was that you know, it had to be brought over, transported from India. And they didn't get a whole lot of perfume out of one spike. It's actually like two words, spike, nard, oil. And the reason it was called spike is because the plant itself, it had a picture in the dictionary, has a, a spike in the middle of it, a very sharp spike that's as long as my pinky finger. And, um, and anyway, it was supposed to be that it had the, they would crush it. And, and the oil that was produced from it, it wasn't, it wasn't a lard kind of a thing. It was a, something that's why she could pour it out. It's supposed to be the most beautiful aroma of antiquity. I guess even more than frankincense was this spike nard. And um, e even the alabaster box that it was housed in would have been expensive because it, alabaster is kind of like onyx or marble. It, it was expensive. But she didn't care. Now, she could have opened the box. You get the picture that it's almost like a lard, don't you? And that she could take it out. Like some perfumes are, are solid. Um, I think we get that idea maybe because of spike nard. Sounds like spike lard. But it was an oil. <laughs> I don't know. But she, So what I'm trying to say is she didn't have to break the box to get out the perfume. But she did. She, you know, if you, she could have just poured it out of the box and preserved the box. But she didn't. She broke the box and just lavishly poured it out. She gave all that she had. And I like this. I read this in one commentator. It said, she poured it all out. She didn't just dip and sprinkle. I like that. She didn't just dip and sprinkle. She broke the box, spilled out the fragrant perfume lavishly upon the Lord's head. And it went all the way down. And you know what color the perfume was? The oil? Red. Ooh, my goodness. It just means so much more. I thought about the spike, you know, the, the crown of thorns that they put in his head, and then the color red. So, you know, I don't know if it was red on his body, but it was all over him from head to feet. And then she did something that wasn't done in public by a woman. She let down her hair. All women back then had long hair. She let her hair down. Uh, uh, hair was a woman's glory. So Mary was humbling herself by this action and surrendering both her pride and her glory to Jesus. In her adoring witness of love and honor, she poured out her whole soul in worship, just as she poured out that very expensive perfume. She lost all sense of restraint. She, you know, at that point, all she, her heart was just overflowing. She was spilling over. She didn't care what people thought. She wasn't even thinking about other people. She just wanted to express her love to Jesus. And she, didn't, she had no concern for the cost. And she just was totally controlled by her love and her adoration of her Lord. You see, Mary loved the Lord Jesus. And that genuine love was what caused her devotion to be so costly. If love is real, you know, if you genuinely, truly love someone the way you ought to unconditionally love someone, then it's going to be something that's costly to you, isn't it? Isn't there always risk involved in love? And isn't it costly? Isn't it costly to love somebody? It is. If you really love them the way God wants you to love them, it's going to be sacrificial. 
You think about your children. How much do you sacrifice for your children? But, you know, you don't consider the cost. You love them so you don't consider the cost. You're just willing to sacrifice and sacrifice and give and give and give. And that's what Mary did. Remember what David said in 2 Samuel 24, 24, Neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. We wouldn't show the Lord how much we love him if we just dipped and sprinkled to serve him, would we? You know, to give him our life, to be living sacrifices is just our reasonable service. How do we show him we really genuinely love him? We're willing to be broken and spilled out for him, aren't we? Don't dip and sprinkle. Don't just give him the leftover time in your life. Give him your life like Mary did. Mary must have searched her heart to find a significant way that she could show Jesus some token of her love. You know, how can I show him how much I love him? She's thinking, thinking, and thinking. And then finally she reached for her most valuable possession. And she took it with her. She thought ahead. She took it with her over to Simon's house that night. They weren't at her house, so she could just run into the bedroom. She took it with her over to Simon's house. She may have had that costly box of perfume for some time. We don't know. She might have had it for a long time. But when she came to know Jesus, um, and, and when she learned how, how constantly his own death was in his mind and before him, because remember, she spent time at his feet. She had ears to hear. Whenever he said he was going to be betrayed... And, and suffer crucifixion at the hands of the religious rulers. As again on the third day, guess what? She didn't have her ears plugged up like the disciples. She sat there and she actually heard what he had to say. I think about people in churches so often, they don't really hear what the pastor's saying, do they? It was in one ear and out the other. You have to have ears to hear. She did. She had ears. She knew that he was going to die. He kept saying it. You know, if he says it, he must really mean it. It's going to happen. Know that she, uh, she had put it aside. Whenever she got it, she put it aside for Jesus. Because Jesus tells us this in verse 7 of John 12. It says, he says that she had kept it against the day of his burial. And now the decisive hour had come. No, well, you know, I imagine that Mary knew that he had just told his men that in two days on the Passover, he would be betrayed and crucified. As soon as they got to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they shared that news with that family. Mary heard that. Two days, she thinks, this is all I have. This is actually the last night that Jesus spends with them. He doesn't spend Wednesday night in Bethany. He's celebrating the Passover. So this is the last night. The decisive hour has come. And, and she knew that was uh, apparently much more quick to understand than his own men had been. <laughs> it's You know, women have an intuition that men just, sometimes they're just clueless, aren't they? I mean, not always. They've got, they've got their, their <laughs> good points that we're, we're, we're weak in. <laughs> That's why we need each other. But sometimes when it comes to, to relationships and intuition, I guess God gave us more intuition because we are more relational, we are more concerned about relationships, and we need intuition to understand those men in our lives, not only our husbands, but our fathers and our sons. And we need more intuition to raise children, don't we? Oh, absolutely, and grandchildren. But she got it, whereas his men uh, hadn't yet gotten it. It's this uh, believing understanding 
therefore, of the upcoming mystery of his death and her hope of his resurrection that caused her, in, I'm sure, in mixed grief, you know, she's got to be sad that he is going to be crucified in two days, but in mixed grief and devotion and love and faith, this is what caused her to pour out upon him her very costly perfume, a gift such as was given to kings. Now, remember last week we saw when he gave that parable of the um, sheep and goats that he said for the very first time that he was a king, he called himself a king for the first time? She hadn't heard that because she hadn't been on the Mount of Olives, but we know it. And she's giving him now a gift fit for a king. She was not only expressing her love, she was bearing witness to the value of his person. She entered into that which was about to be done to him because she anointed him for burial. Instead of anointing his body after his burial, as we find all the other women did, she anointed his body before his burial. Um, In a real sense, we could say that Mary was bringing him the flowers while he was still alive instead of taking them to the funeral parlor, right? She was bringing him the flowers while... And I thought, you know, that's my motto. Bring me the flowers while I'm still alive. I'm not going to appreciate him very much when I'm in the casket. (laughs) I know the flowers are not really for the dead person, are they? They're for the family, but... I'd rather, I told my children, I'd rather have the flowers now so I can smell them and enjoy them. And there'll be plenty of flowers up there in heaven, I'm sure, so I won't need them then. So by way of Mary's anointing of Jesus, God was seeing to it. See, Mary was another precious gift on this Tuesday. Isn't it neat? The Lord God gave his son two precious gifts on that very awful day of contention for his son. One was the widow woman who gave her two mites in the middle of the day and then at the end of the day God presented his son with Mary of Bethany God was seeing to it that before any enemy's hand or any betrayer's kiss touched his son the hands of love first anointed him John tells us that the house was filled with the odor of ointment The perfume was absolutely so fragrant that it not only filled the room wherever they were, the dining room or whatever, but it filled the whole entire house. Can you imagine how sweet and wonderful that made the Lord himself smell? He just must have smelled fantastic after his long, sweaty day. (laughs) Now he smelled great. I thought about every time we see Martha and Mary and Lazarus, you could throw him into There's always odors involved. You know, the first time we saw them, they were busy cooking, right? And you can smell almost when you read the story and Martha's all cumbered about and they're going to serve the Lord, you can almost smell the bread in the oven and the cookies, you know, and you smell food. That's the smell of life, isn't it? And then the next time we see them, Lord, he stinketh. That's the smell of death. And now the third time we see the three of them, There's this fragrance of this very expensive spikenard perfume. That's the smell. That's the smell, the fragrant smell that rises up to the Lord's nostrils. That's the smell of worship, isn't it? Interesting. So Mary, who had sat so often at the Lord's feet, listening attentively to his words, seemed on this occasion to understand the significance of his approaching death better than anyone else, including his own men. 
She understood, you see, what the disciples didn't want to understand. They had their ears plugged up because they didn't want to understand. They didn't want to hear that he was going to be betrayed and crucified, did they? They wanted so much, the kingdom. And what were they all, you know, part of the reason I think that they didn't hear with ears of understanding is because they, their whole hearing thing was clouded over, plugged up because of their pride. They were so anxious for him to set up the kingdom so that they could have their thrones. What were they always bickering about? Who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who was going to get to sit on his right hand and on his left hand? Mary didn't care about all that. She would be content to sit throughout the kingdom and all of eternity. Where? Not on his right or left hand, not on a throne. She didn't care about that. She'd be content to sit there at his feet throughout all of eternity. And I think that's why she had ears to understand. She didn't have that pride thing going on. She also had heard knew through her own brother's death and resurrection that except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it'll bring forth much fruit. Her brother, if he had just kept on living, would never have seen the fruit that he saw after he died and then came back to life. She knew that same principle would be true. She knew that Jesus had raised her brother from the dead after four days. And who could do that but one who was God? So Mary understood. Mary understood that even if he was crucified, he would do exactly what he said. And in three days, he would rise from the dead. Well, unfortunately, this beautiful, tender moment of pure worship and adoration was not appreciated by all of the other guests. And this moves us into our discussion of Mary's worship examined. First of all, we're going to see that it is examined by Judas and the disciples. First of all, let's read verses 4 to 6 of John 12. Then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. Now that's not Simon the leper's son. It's another Simon. Simon was a very, very common name back in those days. Uh, But Judas Iscariot then saith him... Which should betray him. John tells us that he knows that Judas is the betrayer. He doesn't know it then, but he knew it when he wrote the gospel. Here's what Judas says. And this is interesting because this is the very first time that we ever hear anything from Judas Iscariot. And his first words are these. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put therein. All right, now I'm going to move over to Mark 14. If you want to try to keep up with me, you can, but I'm going to look at Mark 14, verses 4 and 5. Quickly here. And there were some that that, that had indignation within themselves. Interestingly, the word there for indignation is the word that is used for a horse's snort. (laughs) You know, when a horse snorts, I won't try to to do that right now because that would probably be nasty up here, but um, when a horse, that's what the men were doing. You know who precipitated all this, who put this little thought of poison in the disciples' mind was Judas. We just read that, right? He's the first one to speak up. But then all of them, they thought the same way Judas thought, and they thought, "Mm," and they were indignant about it. 
They thought within, in themselves and said, Why was this waste of the ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and have been given to the poor. And they murmured against her. Against who? Poor, poor Mary. Well, the insensitive disciples, have, having no clue, <laughs> no understanding of what had prompted Mary to do what she had just done, they were indignant over the waste of such expensive spikenard perfume. So they said, for what purpose is this waste? Uh, can you think what an insult that was to the Lord? That's an insult to the Lord. They're saying, in other words, Mary's worship of the Lord in giving her very best for the Lord was a waste. That's an insult to him, isn't it? It surely is, if you think about it. They're saying this ointment could have been sold for a lot of money, and that money could have been given to the poor. The Apostle John, he tells us uh, that the one who had injected this poison into the disciples' minds was none other than Judas Iscariot, who was the original protester and the spokesman for the group. It was his evil example that corrupted the thoughts and the manners of the other. Behind the rose bush of faith and love revealed by Mary was the serpent of faithlessness and greed revealed in Judas. Did you ever think about how appropriately this scene before us illustrates the words, some of the words of the 23rd Psalm? Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with what? With oil. Hmm, interesting. Well, Judas's question, why this waste, was precisely the way that the world, under the dominion of the devil, sees anything that is done for the Lord Jesus. Don't they? Don't they think a wasted life is a life spent for Jesus Christ? Why would we be spending, this is the end of our 23rd year, some of you have been with us since the beginning, right, Dottie? Right, uh, Gene and Doris? And been with us a long time. Why would somebody spend 23 years of their lives studying about three years of one man's life who lived a long, long time ago? Why would people spend their lives studying this book? Oh, what a waste. My own dad told me that when my dad was dying of Lou Gehrig's disease and I finally, finally got to witness to him because he couldn't leave, couldn't walk away from me. He couldn't move, so there he was, a captive prisoner, and I got to witness to him for about two hours, and he said, he turned to my mother and he said, what a waste, what a waste of her life. She could be teaching good things, important things. She could be teaching Socrates instead of about Jesus. Socrates was a better man than Jesus, he told me, true Greek right to the end, <laughs> because Socrates told people uh, how to live. Jesus just, I don't know, was... He said he was just for the Jews. Anyway, he said I was, my life was a waste, and we were brainwashing our children. But that's, you know, all I could think was, Dad, oh, Dad, you've got it so upside down. It's, it's the life that, you know, isn't lived for Jesus that is the wasted life. It's really just totally the opposite. The only things that will not be wasted are those things that are done for him. What's that little cliche? Only one life, so soon tis past. Only what's done for Christ will last. You know, everything down here is going to be burned up. Only going to be two things that will last for eternity. The word of God and human souls. 
Invest your time wisely in that which is permanent, not temporary. You know, send your treasure, lay up your treasures in heaven where they're not going to corrupt and be destroyed. And one day, our la- we're promised our labor is not in vain. I can promise you anything and everything that you break and spill out for the Lord is not done in vain. We will reap if we don't faint and we don't get weary in well-doing. So keep on keeping on for him. Love for the Lord is never wasted. Sacrificial service for the Lord is never, ever in vain. In fact, love cannot give him too much. You know, when we're all on our deathbed, you know, if the rapture don't happen, (laughs) which I'm planning on, uh, but if we're on our deathbed, what do you think we'll be thinking? Oh, I wish I didn't serve Jesus so much. Oh, I just... I should not have done that much for him. I I should have just enjoyed myself more. Do you think any of us are going to be thinking that? I promise you, every single one of us is going to be saying, Oh, I wish I had done more for the Lord. I wish I hadn't wasted so much time on foolish things that don't matter in the long run. I wish I hadn't spent so much time for me, myself, and I, and spent it on others and him. Every one of us is going to be thinking that. No sacrifice is great enough for the one who was broken and spilled up for us. Aren't you glad he didn't just dip and sprinkle when it came to you and I? That he was willing to be broken and spilled out, shed his precious sinless blood for you and I? The least we can do is be the same for him. Well, the sad truth of the matter is that even if the alabaster box of expensive spikenard perfume had been rescued and sold, say Mary said, oh, hmm, I I shouldn't have done that. Go out, buy another one, give it to Judas. What do you think would have happened to the money? It would have gone in his pocket. And we know that because John tells us in verse 6, he said that Judas, who was the treasurer for the group, was also a thief. That's divinely inspired. We don't have to speculate. Judas was a thief. Most likely he would have embezzled most of the money from the sale and put it in his own pocket. He had no real love for Jesus. Don't believe these little theories out there, um, hypotheses that Judas had a love and he was just misguided and all this kind of stuff that they say about Judas. He really had no love for Jesus. Even though he had been in close contact with him for some three years, yet the love of money still ruled his heart. That's amazing to me when I think about all that Judas witnessed. Can you imagine being with Jesus in a boat in the middle of a storm and Jesus getting... The disciples are scared to death. They're all going to drown. Jesus stands up and says three words, peace be still, sudden calm. Judas saw that? Was there? All the miracles he witnessed? all The resurrection of, of Lazarus out of the tomb? And yet, what rules his heart here? Money. Mammon over God. It's amazing. I, can't, I cannot identify. I can't imagine how a person can be like that. And yet, most of the world is like that, aren't they? Most of the world. Interestingly, the very first words we ever hear from Judas in the gospel accounts are words that reveal the true nature of his heart. Words that put a price tag on Mary's act of loving worship. And yet, he sought to conceal his greed, like so many do, under the cloak of benevolence. You know, he said, oh, this money could have been... You know, he he posed himself as a friend of the poor. He didn't really care about the poor. And we know that because John says he was a thief and took away what was put therein. In the little script he carried that was supposed to have the love offerings from the people to buy bread for Jesus and the other men. He kept taking money out of that script. 
Think about the contrast we have between the two main characters of our story here together today, uh, Mary and Judas. <clears throat> what a contrast. You know, the best of human nature and the worst of human nature. Mary gave freely to Christ that which was worth over 300 denarii, which was, as I said, a gift fit for a king. Judas, in the very next scene, when we start next year, first thing we're going to see, Judas leaves. And he goes and he sells Christ to the religious rulers. He betrays him for 30 pieces of silver, which was the price of a slave. Mary had a box, which she gladly broke. Judas had a bag, which he greedily gripped. Mary drew attention of everyone, the attention of everyone to Christ, whereas Judas drew thoughts all from Christ. You know, she gave value to the person of Christ. He took value away from the person of Christ. Mary's action filled the house with a sweet fragrance. Judas's words filled the house with satanic fumes. Mary's action caused her name, we'll see, to be a memorial of devotion. From that day forward, Judas's action made his name a memorial of damnation. Do you know if you look in the uh, dictionary, his name is synonymous with treachery. Every time Judas is found in, this, in, the, in the Bible, it always mentions his betrayal of Jesus. Always. What a tag. What a label to carry throughout all of eternity. Does anybody name their kids Judas? I'm sorry if you did. I don't, I, if you did, I don't know why you did, but you don't hear little boys being named Judas. His name is is uh, affiliated with betrayal and treachery and deceitfulness and Satan. King Solomon said, a good name is better than precious ointment. Think about it. Mary had both. Judas had neither. His caustic criticism, if you can imagine being Mary, that criticism, first from Judas and then from all the rest of the disciples, must have cut her heart like a sharp knife. Poor Mary, every time, this poor woman, every time she's innocently doing that which her heart tells her to do, she's criticized. When all she wanted to do was sit at the Lord's feet and learn from him who criticized her first, a family member, mm -hmm, her own sister, uh, criticized her for not helping with the, the dishes, the cooking, the, the washing. Then when she poured out her soul in loving de devotion upon the one who not only raised her brother from the dead, but also gave her own soul eternal life, she's criticized for her, her worship, criticized for being wasteful, you know, for not washing and for being wasteful. And this is something we can expect, every one of us, we can expect that if we give Jesus first place in our lives, I guarantee you, you're going to be criticized. Sometimes you're going to be criticized by those in your own family, like her sister. Those you least expect to be criticized from. You know, her sister was a Christian too, Sometimes criticism comes from the house of God, doesn't it? That's, oh, it really hurts. And the apostles, they, you wouldn't think that they would be criticizing her, but they were. Of course, Judas wasn't a true apostle, but yeah, the good, and we can expect that. If we give our lives for Jesus, you can expect to be criticized. But the good news, in both of Mary's situations, who was it that leapt to her defense? She didn't have to say a word. Don't worry about defending yourselves. I didn't defend myself with my dad. When he said I was wasting my life, I just kept my mouth closed. Not that I was smart, but I, for some reason I did that. That's very rare. 
But that's what Mary did. She didn't leap to her own defense. She let the Lord do it. Uh, Let's look at the examination of Mary's worship by Jesus. And for this, I'm going to read. Are you in Mark 14? I'm going to read verses 6 to 9. I don't know where you are, but I'm going to read verses 6 to 9. It says, And Jesus said, Let her alone. Oh, underline. I love that. Let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For ye have the poor with you always, and whensoever ye will, ye may do them good, but me ye have not always. She hath done what she could. She is come aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily, I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. Think about this moment for Jesus. This must have been uh, a time of deep emotion for him. Not only deep the deep emotion of joy that he felt in experiencing Mary's worship. Can you imagine being in his shoes? Jesus' shoes? I mean, he knows he's going to be betrayed by one of his own. He knows who it is. He knows all the sheep are going to scatter. He knows he's going to die in two days. And uh, yet, instead of his men defending the true sheep, Mary, they go with the false one, Judas, and criticize her worship of devotion. Uh, If you had been him... What would you be all about right now? I know I'd be having a giant pity party. I'd say, all these years, and I've got one lone little sheep. Only one. One woman. She's the only one who understands me. She's the only one who cares. Nobody else understands. Nobody else cares. He could be having a real pity party. I mean, on the one hand, he's got joy over what she did. At least one does understand. On the other hand, he's got grief. Not only knowing that his men have chosen the wrong direction here again, they went with the the wrong person, but he knows what Judas is about to do. Right after this scene, Judas leaves to betray him. And yet he's not consumed with his own thoughts and his own little pity party. Here we see him doing what? Jumping to the defense of his little sheep. He's the good shepherd protecting his little sheep from the big bad wolf. (laughs) And this is a picture, too, of his work for us right now on high. Isn't that, isn't he our advocate? Isn't he our uh, defense? What is the word, advocate for the defense? Up there in heaven? Every time you and I do something and Satan is there pointing the finger and criticizing us, you know what he says? Leave her alone. Let her alone. She has done a good work for me. You just get away from here, Satan. And he has to go. I love that. I think about that. Oh, yes, because I do things wrong every single day. (laughs) And he says, leave her alone. She hath done what she could. Uh, So where am I? Oh, Judas. Judas. This is interesting. It's interesting in a tragic sort of way that Judas who accused Mary of waste. Isn't that what he accused her of doing? Of wasting? He himself is called by Jesus, the son of perdition. And you know what the word perdition means in the Greek? Waste. He is called by Jesus, the son of waste. Think about it. If ever there was anybody's life who has ever been lived from Adam and Eve all the way to today... Who would it be that you'd write the giant word waste over? I'd pick Judas Iscariot. 
If ever there was a man who wasted golden opportunities to have a very, very fruitful life and to one day sit on one of those 12 thrones in the kingdom and rule with Jesus, who was it? Judas Iscariot, the son of waste, the son of perdition. And yet, instead of asking... uh, Instead of asking, why this waste of my own life? He's saying, why this waste of Mary's spikenard? At any rate, we see Jesus could have been consumed with his own problems, but he wasn't. He jumped to the defense of sweet Mary. Sweet Mary. He says basically what he had said in her defense when Martha was criticizing her. He says, she hath chosen that good part. In both situations, she chose the best part, sitting at the feet of Jesus and worshiping Jesus. Judas may have condemned Mary's action, and the disciples might have chimed in with Judas in criticizing Mary's action, but Jesus totally approved of it. And isn't that all that matters? Does it matter what your family might think of you? And if, you know, if they're not Christian, or even if they are Christian and they don't understand your fanaticism, does that matter in the long run? It hurts, yeah. Criticism hurts and misunderstanding hurts. But does it really matter in eternity? No, all that matters in the long run is what Jesus thinks. And Jesus here was totally on her side. And he is the one who came to her defense. He went on to say, for you always have the poor with you, but... Me, you not, you don't always have. You know, in two more days, you'll still have the poor. You can take care of them then. In 2,000 years, the poor will still be with you. But me, you don't always have with you. You've only got two more days, and then I'll be gone. And somehow, at some point in time, the light had come on in Mary's soul, and she had realized that her beloved Jesus was truly, truly going to be crucified as he had been predicting. She knew that he would be buried, but she also understood that he was going to rise again, just as her brother had done. Well, not just as her brother had done. Her brother just came back in his own human body. He would be glorified in a resurrected body. Hadn't he said to her and Martha, I am the resurrection and the life? Mary of Bethany, and I'll close with this, she seems to be the only one the only one who understood and believed the Lord's predictions of his own resurrection. And I say that because you see a lot of Marys when we get to the tomb, to the, the cross and the tomb. There's a lot, because Mary was a very common name too, just like Simon was a common name. You see um, Mary, the Lord's mother, at the cross. You see Mary Magdalene at the tomb. You see Mary, the mother of uh, Joseph and James. She's at both the cross and at the tomb. But you know what? Mary of Bethany is at neither one. She's not at the cross and she's not at the tomb. Now, why do you think that is? I believe it's because Mary of Bethany was already standing on resurrection ground. I believe that Mary of Bethany, she didn't want to see the Lord suffering. She'd already anointed him for his burial. She didn't want to see all that suffering. She didn't go to the cross. And she was just waiting there in Bethany for the news to come that he had risen, just as he said. And that's why you don't find her 
at either place. Yes, she knew that in her heart. A great woman of great intuition. And let's all pray that we can be like Mary of Bethany. Always found at the feet of Jesus. Whether it's learning or taking our burdens or worshiping.